0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot .org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Stephen Carter and Jet Atwood, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you guys tonight?
1: I'm doing really well.
0: <laughs> I'm with Jet. I'm grateful to have both of you on uh, this book that we're going to spend some time talking about, uh, Mormonism for Beginners, uh, by Stephen Carter, illustrations, uh, by you, Jet. Uh, just a grateful, just grateful for the chance to kind of just sit down and talk with you guys, get a little bit of your story, and, and then to talk about the book. And, and I wonder maybe, um, if both of you would just take turns here and just give us like a really brief bio about yourself so that folks kind of get a, a, early on feel for you before we move into the interview. I'm Stephen I grew up in Utah County.
2: I didn't actually leave Utah until at the age of 17 I went to Disneyland and it wasn't much different from Utah and then uh, after that I went on a mission to Toronto Canada and then I came home, married my child, my, uh, my uh, high school sweetheart and Ever since then, I've been pretty lucky. I spent most of my professional life writing. I, I started as a lowly television delivery boy on the Utah University or Utah Valley University campus. But then I moved to helping professors write online courses, which back then were the new thing. That's how old I am. And then I worked as a full-time news reporter for a few years, uh, earned an MFA and a PhD. And then taught high school for two years before I became the editor of Sunstone, which is my current job.
1: Uh, hi, I'm, uh, Jet Atwood. Uh, Jet is short for Jeanette, lest you think my parents are super cool. Um, I'm, I'm one of those rare individuals that knew what they wanted to do at a very, very early age and, and made it happen. I knew when I was uh, six. That I wanted to to be an artist and and especially to be a, a cartoonist and animator, and so pretty much my entire life was moving forth towards that goal. I uh, I grew up mostly in Farmington, Utah. My my first job was at Lagoon. I was one of the annoying people that snapped your picture when you first walked into the park and later tried to sell it to you, which actually was really great missionary training. Um, I served a mission in Washington D.C. South Spanish speaking. And, uh, later went to art school, uh, in Toronto. Well, south of Toronto. Didn't know Stephen. Um, and I've worked at a few, I've lived in a few places and worked at a few different companies. I've, I've been actually very, very fortunate in my career that I've actually been able to make a go of it. I, I don't take it, uh, lightly that I get to draw cartoons and, and get paid for it.
0: Thank you. I, I just want to tell the both of you, cause we'll get into the book here in a little bit, but looking at the book, um, I saw the book for the first time at, uh, at Sunstone and I was picking it up. I was, I was sitting there at Benchmark Books and their little table they've got set up and going through all the books and this one just caught my eye and I picked it up and I'm flipping through it. And, and what amazes me, and we'll get into this here as we go along, but the, the humor and yet there's the seriousness, your, there's this softness. There's this tackling really, really difficult issues kind of in the book just to be as kind of a prepper for somebody as they encounter Mormonism. And, and the, the artwork, the illustrations throughout the book are just amazing. And I, I just want to tell you it's a wonderful project that you guys have put together. But before we jump into that, I want to just kind of get a better feel for the two of you. And, and Stephen, maybe, maybe start us off. You and I were chatting a little bit today kind of in prep for this and a little bit yesterday. Um, you wrote a uh, a book of essays uh, titled What of the Night, and and this podcast is geared towards people who go through faith transitions. I wonder if you might talk for just a moment, kind of about your faith journey and and what that book was and, and what you were trying to accomplish in that. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to give much uh, hope to anybody because I'm
2: pretty much in year fifteen of my faith transition. <laughs> It's been a long time since I started that. Um, so when I was about uh, 25 years old, uh I started into what is now called a faith crisis, but they didn't have a word for it back then. And I come from a huge Mormon family, and they were very orthodox back then. And so I moved to Alaska to do this. And, 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 and I went there uh, with my wife and children to pursue an, an MFA in fiction. But the funny thing was when I got there and I started to write for my classes, I realized that I was writing about nothing but Mormonism. <laughs> and it was Mormonism that I was kind of trying to get away from. And as I was writing, one of the first things that I worked on was an, was an essay called uh, "The Weight of Priesthood," and as I was writing about it, it was alternately a pro-Mormon sermon and then suddenly an anti-Mormon rant. And I kept going back and forth between these two voices, these two genres, and it it, it distressed me. I I really wanted to go to one side or to the other. I wanted it to either be able to fit into the Ensign or else be able to put it up to great acclaim on ExMormon.org or something like that. And it was in the middle of writing this that I started to realize kind of one of the main tenets that's sort of propelled my spiritual life ever since. Uh, what I started to see was that there were two stories that were trying to tell me. And so as I was writing, I was writing about the priesthood. I wrote about what happened when I uh, received uh, baptism and confirmation and what it was like to feel the priesthood sort of working on me there. And then I started talking about what happened when I got the priesthood and, you know, when I gave my first blessing and when I gave a blessing that actually seemed to work and when I gave a blessing that absolutely did not work. Um I started to realize that, that that there was a huge tension between those two things and that there were two stories that were basically fighting over my experience. Each one of them wanted to tell me. And that was when I started to realize that I needed to find sort of a, a middle path. I needed to find a way to be able to wrest my experiences from these two big stories that were trying to tell me and that has basically been propelling my spiritual life ever since. I see the world as stories that are trying to tell me and I'm always trying to find my way out of them.
0: I think listeners to this again this audience is made up of people who are somewhere along the spectrum but somewhere in realizing that they are they are in a faith transition and and I think this this book of essays that you've got What of the night will be one that that folks may want to look to and, and to, to take a look at. Um, Jet, I, I was looking at your uh, Wikipedia page. Well, it's, it's pretty cool. I was looking at it today and even doing this podcast, I don't have a Wikipedia page yet. So I, I think that just makes people really cool that they've got one. And one of the things on there, I wondered if you might want to talk for just a moment. Uh, two things. One is that you were sharing a little bit of a story before we started recording about how you really early on felt like you were just drawn to to be an artist and and I wonder if you'd share that story again, but also, as I was reading the Wikipedia page, I read that you had created a a comic book hero and and wondered if maybe you would talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done that uh, that people out there might uh, be aware of
1: my growing up, my dad had this had this habit which you just could not get away with today. We would be out in public places and and he would see people and and he would tell us as little kids, "Hey, go give that person a hug." And I think sometimes he knew them and sometimes he didn't, but uh we were living in North Carolina at the time and our and we were off at a state conference and we were living in a branch that was barely a twig and so we had to travel a long way to get to state conference and I'm I'm it's the summer between I between me between kindergarten and first grade. So I wasn't, it, it's right around the time I turned six and, uh, and you know, that's, that's a long day for a, a six year old kid. It's, and uh, at any rate, he, um, he pointed out this guy sitting, sitting close by, sitting on one of the, one of the pews during this long, terribly boring meeting for a six year old and said, Hey, go sit by that guy and give him a hug. So I did. And uh, and I wound up staying by this man. His name was uh, I'm not sure what his first name was. It was uh, Brother Lipinski and Brother Lipinski pulled out a pad of paper and a pencil and started drawing for me. And unlike most adults, he was actually very, very good. And uh, I don't I don't know what it was, but I, I got it in my head that I wanted to be able to draw better than Mr. Lipinski. And so. That entire summer, I, all I did, all I wanted to do was just draw, just draw and draw and draw and draw. So by the time I started first grade, I, I, I was moderately better than my peers and uh, got a lot of attention for it. And then roughly around that same time, we went to see an animated flick and I'm not sure which one it was but my older brother explained to me how they did animation and they said, yeah, you know, they do a drawing and then they put another piece of paper on top and they do another drawing, but it changes just a little bit and it changes just a little bit over and over and over. And, and that's how, that's how they do cartoons. And, and another light bulb went off in my head that said, that's a job. And, uh, and I, and that's, that was, and uh, there was a whole new Jeanette. It's like, there was one moment and then there was another. And, uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah, I was going to say looking back, I mean, like I, I look at, I look at the stuff that I was drawing and I was never, ever, ever a prodigy by any stretch. I was just, I just kept going and I, I made it over that very dangerous period where most kids quit drawing when their, uh, when their ambition exceeds their ability. A lot of a lot of kids quit drawing, and I I made it over that hump. I
0: wonder maybe tell us some of the projects you've been involved with, things that that you know uh, characters or or certain genres or certain um, programs or things like that you've you've produced for.
1: I worked on a, on a few video games. Uh, one of my favorite things I got to do I when I was working at a company called uh, called Smart Bomb in downtown Salt Lake, and they've they've since changed their name, but we were actually the very first. Um company that took the peanuts characters and were able to take them to three d and i'm I'm a huge charles Schultz fan, and uh I was not super thrilled about the project because you know these are two d characters, but it was one of those no, this is happening and so i I wound up sort of being the de facto ex- peanuts expert at the studio and i would do i did a bunch of storyboards and helped work on the story of the game, and I found out it was actually. My boards that convinced the Schultz family to, uh, entrust us with, uh, with Charlie Brown and Snoopy and Linus. And it was a lot of fun. And I got to, uh, practice a little bit of nepotism and, and cast my uh, niece and my nephew as, as Charlie and Sally Brown. So they have a little bit of immortality there. I've done a bunch of, of personal projects. Uh, I did do a, a comic strip called Red Sparrow, which I don't think is actually online anymore. I'm actually in the process of, of reworking that and doing, and uh, one of my goals this next year is to actually pitch it as an animated series. So I'm excited about that. Um, I've not actually done a lot that people have actually seen. I primarily do storyboards now, which is sort of like building a blueprint of a, of an animated show. So I get to pick every shot and acting choices and, and, uh, kind of help build the film for the pipeline. But nothing, nothing I draw ever makes it on, on screen, but all my scenes, it's like my fingerprints are all over it. And I really enjoy that. I, I enjoy being, a you're sort of a mini director with a director. And then I've done several 24 hour comics and my, my first one was actually wound up being published. And that's, doing a 24 hour comic is a, is a really interesting experience. You never do one to quote unquote win. It's like running a marathon. You know, you do it just to say you did it. And, uh, let me give you a a super quick explanation. You have 24 hours and before those 24 hours start, you're allowed to gather up all your materials, your paper, your pens, your pencils. You are not supposed to work out the story or anything in advance. You just get there. And when the 24 hours starts, you have 24 hours to write and draw a 24-page comic. And it's just mostly an exercise to just sort of, like, uncork you creatively. I I mean, it really is astonishing, like, what you can actually get done in a 24-hour period. And I got, as I was working on mine, I realized just how much of myself I, I was pouring into it. And I finished it. And I knew, this is going to sound incredibly cocky, I knew that it was actually really, really good. And no one that knew me could ever read it. And then a few months later, I got uh, a message from the guy that, that actually organized the 24 hour comic worldwide. Um, cause you would draw them and then you would make copies and send it into him and he would go through and, and then he would publish, you know, 24 of them and i i got a message from him saying that you know he was very taken with it and wanted to include it in the anthology and i and i had to think and like because it was so for me it was so nakedly revealing and dealing with a lot of things that i was very much struggling with at the time so it's like either keep this to myself and or or let it be published and and i i chose to let it be published i don't think my my mother has i don't think she's actually read it yet but that's actually one of one of the things i'm i'm most proud of was my 24-hour comic but the things the things professionally that i am absolutely the most proud of are the the eye plates series that Stephen and i do and the uh the mormonism for beginners book i'm i'm probably the most professionally proud of, of those two projects
0: yeah and the eye plates was one that caught my eye because you guys did this. I was talking to Stephen at Sunstone about this, and and this is what I saw. I remember there being a, a fundraiser site. It was um, – which one was it that you guys did the iPlates on?
1: Oh, we did a Kickstarter for yes. uh, for Volume 2.
0: Yes. Yeah, so there was a Kickstarter, uh, essentially fundraiser for to back the book, and I remember seeing it on there because I had just put my podcast in as a 501c3 and it started a fundraiser on Kickstarter as well, and I was curious. I'm like, what other things out there are, are touching on Mormonism that are, are using this kind of arena to try and gather some backing? And I saw the iPlates uh, second edition up there, and I just thought, wow, this thing looks amazing. And so it was the very first time I got put into contact with the, the work of, by you two. And I just want to say it's incredible – before we kind of jump into the eye plates as well as the Mormonism for beginners, I want to just throw one more question to each of you touching on Stephen's writing and your artwork, uh, Jet, your illustrations and the things that you've done. Um, I-, I want to get a feel from both of you, like what that's meant through your life. Like I- I'm not a great writer. I'm even a worse uh, artist. I've got one uh, campground scene that's my go to that I can draw some tents and a few trees and and I can't do anything beyond that. And I've always wanted to be good at those things because it feels like that would be such a great way to interact with things outside of yourself and to even find like new meaning within yourself. Maybe take a moment each of you and just tell me like how much Stephen writing has meant to you and what, what that's been an outlet for and, and Jet artwork uh, for you. The first thing that I should
2: say is that Writing takes a ton of practice, at least for me. I was a terrible writer before I got all of the years of practice, and I'm better now. But like Jet, I was not a prodigy. Everything that you see on the page came through blood, sweat, and practice. So it's not... (laughs) I am not Joseph Smith by any (laughs) stretch of the imagination. I do not get my things through peepstones. Basically, to me... Uh, writing is a navigation tool. So w- when you're writing, you can keep your writing as secret as you want. So you can head off into one direction, see where it goes, and then decide if it's, if it's productive. And if it isn't, you can backtrack and take another direction and nobody's around to make fun of you. It's, it's a way of wrestling my, it's, it, it's one of the ways of wrestling my story away from the culture, which I talked about er- earlier. It gives me a way to forge a path that's as much mine as it can be. I've also described uh, writing as kind of a months-long act of repentance. Uh, but by repentance, I don't mean like going back to the straight and narrow. What I mean is that I take some of the imperfect, malformed, messy experiences of my life, and I dwell with them for a long time. And then when I've changed enough to see a way to make those experiences into something beautiful, not because I changed them, but because I can find how their imperfections interact with each other, then I know that I'm finally done. So actually, maybe alchemy is a better word for that than, than repentance. But bringing imperfect things together and making them beautiful, thats that's basically what I try to do with writing.
1: Dang, I should have gone first because that was incredibly erudite. I, I guess I'm thinking like what, what drawing has done for me rather than, than my process. When my family moved from, uh, from North Carolina to Utah, in, in North Carolina, me and my, my siblings, we were the only Mormons um, in the entire school surrounded by a bunch of Southern Baptists. I was, I was used to being the, uh, the odd duck. So when we were moving to Utah, I thought, oh, this is going to be great because everyone's going to, to be Mormon and everyone will be nice. And not that, not that everyone wasn't already nice in North Carolina because in North Carolina, they also were very, very big on manners. Moving to Utah was an enormous culture shock. I was already, I was always a kind of a, an odd duck anyway. I had a very, very hard transition. But the the one thing that I knew, despite like all the teasing and all the insecurity and and my my dad being gone all the time for his jobs and, you know, and financial um difficulties that my family had, I I always could go back to my drawing. And it was something that my my peers would actually respect. It's like, yeah, she's she's weird, but but she can draw. And it was it was a, a great escape for me. Um, so now, as a grown up i'll I'll still fall into a drawing or fall into a storyboard sequence or 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 just immerse myself in um whatever project it is i'm working on like there was uh um one of the things I'm really grateful for working with stephen is is uh and I'm sure we're gonna talk a bit more about this. Um, but um, we, were, we were working on iPlates and we were coming up on this section that Steven had, had scripted, I think, just a page or two. And by this point, I felt like I knew the characters well enough that I had a very long conversation with him saying, this this character needs a case made. I mean, it, it it's really, really... It's an interesting experience and I, and I think writers probably have the same thing, if not probably even to a greater degree. Um, But when, when I, when I'm drawing, especially drawing characters, it's like, you just, you just fall into their mindset and you're able to, you're able to kind of, kind of explore yourself a little bit through whatever it is that you're drawing. It's, it's almost impossible to draw like a really happy character without, Feeling that yourself, like whatever mood of, of the character that you're drawing, you yourself feel. And so there's a lot of times where drawing is, is self-therapy for me. It's really funny. Like I, I joke with some of my friends. It's like, we'll go to work and we'll draw all day and then to go home and relax, we draw some more. And, uh, I, I can't, I, I have no idea what I would do with my life. If I weren't, if I weren't able to draw all the freaking time.
0: Interesting. I, I appreciate both of you sharing that insight into the, the gifts. Again, whether, whether some of that for each of you comes naturally and some of that is just obviously just sweat and, and, and work and, and just staying at it. Appreciate so much you guys just sharing that and, and and folks who are listening, uh, Kind of maybe reflecting on some of the gifts they've got and just how much work has to go into it, but yet again how much of an an outlet in one's life those gifts can be. I, I want to hit on for a moment this eye plates work before we jump into Mormonism for beginners. Um, the eye plates between the two of you, what was what was kind of the impetus for this, and what was the kind of the goal to accomplish in doing? Because it? it's something that's just so different from anything else out there in Mormonism.
1: I think the
2: original impetus was fame and fortune. Isn't that right, Jet?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was sort of miserably on that end, but it's still it's fun true. If you're doing it.
2: No, it, it actually started out uh, very early in my Sunstone career. Uh, I was doing uh, an, an issue that was focusing on Mormons in, in Asia, and I thought, just for fun, let's do a manga, a comic in the back. And so naturally we did. Uh, Ammon, because that's the awesomest story in the Book of Mormon and, you know, with the most violence per page. And so, uh, Chet and I worked on that and it, it turned out great. It's, it's still one of my favorites. And, uh, when we got done, we said, eh, let's keep going. And so, uh, we, uh, we like to say, uh, Nephi's been done to death. Everybody starts with Nephi. We're tired of Nephi. So we went to Zenith. Who uh pretty much nobody remembers, but he has a fascinating story. He he was the guy who like tried to stop the slaughter of the Lamanites, even though he had started out as a Lamanite hater. He had watched them and spied on them and sort of uh, and started to develop some compassion for, for for them. But in the midst of trying to stop this slaughter, his own army slaughtered itself. And so then he uh, later on he leads a party of of Nephites back to the land of Nephi to try to reclaim it and all sorts of things go right for him and all sorts of things go wrong for him. We built a Benedai in early so that he could be interacting with King Noah as he grows up. We just had a ton of fun with
0: it. Awesome. And and Jet, you've been involved in so many different um, things with your artwork. Is there? It just feels like there's maybe something unique about what you're doing here. Any thoughts on the book from that, from the artistic perspective, the artwork that goes into it?
1: Well, the, the first one we did when he said that we did, we did Ammon, he, he wanted, Stephen really, he very much wanted a, a very manga look to it, which is not my natural, my natural style. So I wound up doing a, a ton of research trying to get the look right. Um, but when we decided to keep going, one of the things I told him was I'm like, okay, but we, I, I, I get to do it my style from, from here on out because it's too much work to try and, and ape something that doesn't come naturally to me. So, I mean, um, I wasn't really trying to, to imitate anything. I was, I was very much inspired by, by Walt Kelly and by, um, yeah, with Walt Kelly's Pogo and with Bone because they they read so nicely in, in black and white. But I don't know, for me, it, it was a lot of fun because I wanted to do a, a comic book kind of on a regular basis. And so uh, Stephen allowed me a lot of experimentation, which was fun. So sometimes like the panels can get very, very serious. And then other times it's like things are just super, super wacky. So with, with, without an editor, this is... This is pretty much how I, how my, my nat, my quote unquote natural look is. And it's fun for me because I also, uh, I see a lot of evolution in my, in my own stuff from, from Ammon to, to where I'm at now. I think my anatomy is a lot better. I understand how to lay things out a whole lot more. Um, I think Stephen, I think we were three, three episodes in (laughs) before I told Stephen he didn't need to give me, uh, uh, thumbnail layouts
2: before she begged me to stop sending them.
1: I, I didn't, (laughs) but it was was one of those things where I'm like, well, he's the editor and this is how he wants it. You know, and I'm so used to, you know, in the animation industry or, you know, even working freelance, this is what the client wants and this is what you do. But, um, I, I I think, you know, that there was sort sort of an initial push, push pull as Steven and I were getting used to working with each other that, uh, when I said, hey, let me handle the layout, Stephen knew my work enough that it was like, oh, okay. So when we went from volume one, volume one was just a, a collection of, uh, of the stories in the back of Sunstone. So the, uh, the art is very, very compressed. The action just really, really clips along because, you know, we're telling this, this, this epic story in, you know, five or six page increments. So when we did volume two, I told Steven that I wanted to do it in actual comic book proportions and I didn't want to be advancing the story in five or six page chunks. And so I think we initially thought it would be maybe 60 to 80 pages. And then as soon as I started drawing, it was like it was suddenly like having a whole bunch of elbow room in, in laying the book out that it's like, I'm like we can have three pages of just environment and quiet and set moods and you know, and let things breathe, you know, and build, build moments and, you know, throw in comedy because we weren't constrained to, to a magazine. So that was, that was very free. And also I think with volume two, things worked as well as it did because neither of us, I, neither of us had any idea what we were really getting into. It, it wound up being 150 pages and most of that is my fault because I would draw and then I'd call Stephen and say, this needs a few more pages or um, I'm like, I think we can cut out all of this dialogue and I can do it all just with illustrations. What do you think? And so it wound up being 150 pages. Volume two is it's sort of my own personal journey or personal journal for 2014 because I'll flip through the book and be like, Oh yeah, I was in Belgium when I was doing the sequence or this is what was going on when I was doing this. And so it's a, uh, it's, it's really fun for me to see that. And I think, um, it's also made me a little gun shy in, uh, starting the next project because now I know how much work they are <laughs> before I had no idea, but we do have, we are working on another thing and, and we're hoping that we'll have, um, sorry, Stephen, I'm hoping we're having at least part of it done by the, uh, by the fan expo in, in March 2017, this next year.
0: Awesome, <clears throat> awesome. I, the whole time you're talking, Jed, I'm just sitting here smiling because as you're talking, I'm flipping through this other book, uh, Mormonism for Beginners, which we'll talk about here here in just a second. But it there's just something about the work you guys are doing. I I'm smiling because I don't know whether to say that this is this is to to be kind of a softer look at things and make people chuckle if it's meant to be serious and tackle serious issues, if it's meant to be, as I, I'm specifically talking about the Mormonism for Beginners book now, but I, I can't tell if it's for the person who's not aware of Mormonism or for my bishop who I'm hoping would better understand me and my faith transition to know some of these difficult topics. Here's what I think. You sometimes... When when an author and an illustrator get together and they put a work out, it may feel sometimes like they bit off more than they could chew. I don't think that's the case here. Like you, you guys have tackled so much in this book, Mormonism for Beginners, and yet it, it does it really well. Like I'm sitting here flipping through, and I'm like, I want to sit down and read this thing again. It's it's like part comic book, part serious reflection on Mormonism and, and some of the difficulties within our faith. It it's there to give me a chuckle on pages and other pages validate the fact that I'm I'm going through this journey. I just to kind of move over to this book now, your guys' thoughts on how you how you managed to really put a complicated work together and and I think you guys just nailed it. And I just want to get your thoughts on what all went into that.
1: I'm I'm gonna try chime in super quick. All the credit for that goes to Steven. I I just did drawings. Take it away, Stephen.
2: I sure like to listen to people compliment our work. And the fact is, uh, <laughs> this book wouldn't be nearly what it is without Jet's genius for body language and expression. I mean, there is a real genius there that you see all throughout iPlates. She gives it such, such a, uh, a human feeling to it. You connect with those characters you don't feel like you're being made fun of you don't feel like you're being patronized you don't feel like it's ham-fisted it's uh, it's, it's, it's been like the greatest pleasure of my professional life to work with her so there, now we've exchanged compliments
1: aww <laughs> what's a celebrity yes, about? Yes. compliments and then a question
0: that's right <laughs> yeah. you, guys, you guys pulled this off so well I'm looking at the Mormonism for Beginners book and I'm looking at page 8 and right off the bat you want to start talking about Joseph Smith which obviously is the the very beginning of Mormonism. And and you're talking about folk magic and you've got this illustration jet of of this Joseph kind of in the you know, yeah silhouette and you've got him holding a, a divining rod. He's out essentially water witching. Um you, you tackled you guys tackled serious subjects in this both with the writing and with the art. You you tackle polygamy, Mountain Meadows massacre, You taught you tackle, of course, we just talked about the, the folk magic. Um, you've got uh, the lost 116 pages. You've got, uh, faith, there's a whole chapter here on faith crises and, and some of the things that go along with that. I, I, just think the book is amazing. And I wondered, like, having come off this iPlates work where you're tackling the scriptures, what was the impetus for, for now moving into trying to tell an honest, Um, sometimes funny, but also dealing with the very seriousness of Mormonism. Like, like what was the impetus for that?
1: Uh, money.
0: (laughs) Filthy (laughs) (laughs) lucre. this time we are (laughs) being serious. Let's set the number one priority aside though. All right. So the money making is just, just, we'll just take that as a given that we're trying to, to obviously make an income doing, doing the things that we love. But, but, there's something deeper to this book and I just want to get your thoughts on, on what that is. Well, this time around we're actually being serious. I was contacted by, by a publishing
2: firm called For Beginners Press and, and they wanted to do Mormonism for, for, for beginners. If you go online at their website, uh, you see they do all sorts of For Beginners stuff. They do like Ayn Rand for beginners, Islam for beginners, the prison industrial complex for beginners i mean they just have all kinds of stuff they started out doing philosophers for beginners which is actually kind of what me got what what got me through my undergraduate program so i was kind of tickled to be contacted by them but they offered real money up front for us to actually work on this and so uh that's where we started was with an actual commission this wasn't an idea that that we dreamed up the fact is i I wouldn't have thought of of doing this. It never would have crossed my mind.
0: But I still want to get at this idea that you you tackle so many different components in here, and you do it in a way that the TBM is not going to be offended, that the person going through a transition is going to feel some validation, and the person who is has no clue about Mormonism, who's picking this up and reading it, gets gets really informed, without being spoken down to, without. You, you just you, you spoke to so many audiences in this without it coming across as, again, having bitten off more than you could chew. And and I just I just wanted to kind of get a feel for what all went into that. OK,
2: Pro- prob- probably probably at, at the root of all this is the basic difference that I have about these stories than most other pe- 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 people do. To me, the strength of Mormonism isn't it's cleanliness or it's respectability or, or even it's doctrines. The strength of Mormonism to me is its stories. Uh, a month ago or so, I talked with an, a poet named Marita Daschle. She's Canadian who she's, she's a non-Mormon who wrote a collection of poems in the voice of each of Joseph Smith's wives and it's called Glossolalia. And, uh, they're tremendous poems, very accessible and i asked her <laughs> during this 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 time to, together have you ever read the book of mormon not that i'm trying to send two guys to your door or anything and she said well i tried <laughs> it didn't really work out and i said well have you ever listened to the missionary discussions and she said no i haven't and so i said well you spent years of your life writing poems from the voices of Joseph Smith's poly, uh, polygamous wives, why did you do that if you're not interested in, you know, these basic things about Mormonism? And she said, well, it's because these, these stories were so human. They were so messy. It, it was amazing to go into the depths of these women who were in such a charged situation. And it consumed her enough that she spent several years and doing all kinds of research, historical research, into the Nauvoo period. So the fascinating thing to me about her experience was that it wasn't the doctrine or the scriptures or the missionaries or the church meetings that attracted this poet. It was some of our messiest stories, where there were people who were being utterly human, their artifice just stripped away, where we encountered them in the most extreme moments of their lives. So from what I've seen, uh, institutional Mormonism for the past, you know, uh, since about 1910, 1920, when we started really distancing ourselves from, from, from plural marriage, uh, Mormonism has, has been steering away from these kind of messy stories. They've they've toned them down or, or they've recast them as as morality tales. And they've done this, in in my opinion, as, as an attempt to guide the church membership sort of toward assimilation with with the larger American culture. And those attempts have have worked. The church, you know, now has much more power and much more wealth than it ever has before. And it has a really clean cut, motivated, obedient membership. We have uh, we are overrepresented in the FBI, in 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 business, in in the top tiers of, of, of business, in in political cir- circles. I mean, we have a lot of power now, and I think a lot of that is due to the way that we've cast our stories as morality tales. It helps us to remember what it is that we're supposed to be doing, what our values are. So, uh, the reason why we tell church history stories is to give instruction on how to behave. But in the process of doing that, we've replaced flesh-and-blood people with walking morality tales, basically, and our willingness to follow rules has kind of become attached to our perception that these great historical persons were willing to follow these rules as well. So we become used to acting nobly because they did, you, you know, we, we sing hymns about the sacrifice of the pioneers, and those motivate our own sacrifices. In other words, in in a sense, we place our motivation for our actions outside of ourselves. We say, like, well, this is what Joseph Smith or my pioneer ancestors would, would do. And this has done a lot of good for us. It's made us go here as a culture. It's made us go here as a people. You can kind of tell when you're around a Mormon. And that's a lot because of the way we tell these historical stories. But the thing is uh the heat the the energy the uh, the messiness of these historical people's actual lives and personalities can't be completely suppressed and as anybody who has studied mormon history in any kind of depth knows these people did really weird things even for the time they were living in you know they were digging up gold plates they were publishing new scriptures they were trying to literally build the city of Zion. They were gathering armies together. They were trekking from place to place. They were starting new cities with new types of government. They were practicing plural marriage. So they really were strange people. So, so when we encounter aspects of their lives that can't really be spun into a moral and, and, and frankly, sometimes even seem to be anti-moral, it really destabilizes us. These, these, paragons of virtue that we once used to motivate our own behavior kind of turn out to be all too human and so that's the downside of using history as morality tales i am getting to a point (laughs) so so right now from my perspective uh the official church sources approach stories like joseph smith's treasure digging sort of in muted tones they they, they they tell the stories in a matter-of-fact sort of way, as if to say, oh, yeah, that happened. Now let's get back to the important story. It's kind of a, well, we've covered our basis sort, sort of ad- attitude. And so as a result, this, to me, fascinating portion of Joseph Smith's life that has all kinds of bearing on how his formative years were spent and how his worldview developed, which, you know, in turn uh, impacted Mormonism deeply, is basically missing. It's not integrated into the rest of the story. It's kind of sidebar. And of course, <laughs> if you take Joseph Smith's life as a whole, it's full of this wild stuff. It's 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 the reason people followed him. They they didn't follow him because he was righteous. They followed him because he was interesting. He was charismatic. And and this this sense of adventure and breaking the mold bled over into his followers as well. This this is the reason why we go and travel to go on tours of Kirtland and Nauvoo, because we're going to interesting times, times when things were happening. You know, we never go on the Harold B. Lee tour and, you know, go tour his offices in Salt Lake or anything. (laughs) We go to Nauvoo where things were happening. So to me, stories like Joseph Smith's treasure digging, stories like Zion's camp, Stories like like what happened around polygamy, stories like the Kirtland Safety Society, these are the stories that make Mormonism great and juicy to me because they open that sense of possibility and adventure that made Mormonism flourish in the first place, but it's but has been so thoroughly removed since. I mean you can think, when you read these stories instead of, oh, my gosh, hide it from the children. Don't let the general public know that Joseph Smith was interesting, that, that he did all kinds of things, that, that all sorts of elements went into his prophethood. Make them think that it was just started from this this one vision from the sky. But on the other hand, we could say, holy cow, we were started by a former treasure digger. He found peep stones." He started a new marriage practice because if we can own that, if we can own the vivacity of that amazing charismatic man, he was, he was like this great storm that, that, that rolled through the American religious scene. And he, and, and you know, like a storm, he tore things up, things that have been long rooted and left destruction behind. But at the same time, he left, he, he, he made room for new growth. He left, uh, life-giving moisture to, to help it all grow up and, and amazing things have come from that destruction, that simultaneous destruction and, and reinvention, life-giving. And so, if we can make room for this, this, this strange, bizarre, amazing, charismatic, complicated man, then that means that there's all kinds of room for creation in the church. These stories make room for life. They, they, they tell the weird people in the church, the ones who don't fit the mold, go ahead, be weird. That's God's gift to you. We were started by a weird guy. Cultivate it. See what you can add to this great big pizza of a church. So to me, you know, these, these, these stories, they're launching pads. They're, they're not landing strips. They're here to show us what's possible instead of showing us what we should do. And so to uh, kind of connect it with your, your your target audience of people who are kind of in, in a transition mode, in, in, in my opinion, the best way to stop the exodus of members from the church isn't to be honest about our history, but to be amazed by it, to, to, to tell it to the hilt. And to let that gusto and spirit of exploration bleed into our lives and sort of set it on fire. That's a mixed metaphor if I've ever heard one. And so that was the sort of this, the a story view that I entered this with. Instead of feeling like there were some things that, that were just embarrassing or some things that, you know, we just got to cover the bases, I wanted to go in there and say, what an amazing thing. What could this launch us into? And that's, that's, that's essentially the, uh, the, the, uh, the worldview that is underlying, I think, what you're detecting in there.
1: I, I agree with Stephen that the, uh, the, the messiness, the messiness of, of our stories is, uh, is something that, that makes Mormonism Interesting, and that, and that needs to be embraced. Um, I I think that stories resonate. Like the stories that resonate the most, and I, I wish I were smart enough that this was my original theory. But I mean, we are we are a storytelling animal, and the stories that persist are the stories that actually have some sort of survival information in them. There's a reason that you know we tell the stories of of David and Goliath. There's a reason why. Aesop's fables have lasted as long as they have. There's a reason why stories from the Bible last as long as they have, why Jesus spoke in parables, because there is information given in stories that help inform us in, in decisions that, that we make. So I don't think it's, um I don't think it's necessarily, you know, stop telling these, these clean cut stories. It's, um or, or or stop telling these stories is only morality tells but but knowing that there is messiness i think helps inform those uh in the in the in the quote unquote hinterlands um that there is there is messiness in the church and therefore it is also okay for them to feel a bit of messiness in their in their lives and they're not beating themselves up because you know they are they're not sure they would be that noble teenager who, you know, gave his life carrying, you know, an entire handcart company, you know, across the sweet water in in frozen rivers and Brigham Young saying that, you know, that act pretty much guaranteed them, you know, uh, rest in the celestial kingdom kind of thing. Um, but also, I think one of the reasons that the book. Uh, the book handles so many issues so well is because Stephen and I, uh, we both, we both grew up Mormon, but we both have had, uh, faith journeys that have, have taken us sort of across the spectrum. I know for me, um, I get this analogy all the time. Like when I, when I watch movies and when I watch television, one of the things that drives me crazy is being aware of, of the writer and saying a character will say something or something will happen. And I'll say, oh, that is what that writer thinks that, that this is how that, how something is without actually knowing that's how something is. I was watching a show and there was a, a character from the military and everything was, oh, 300 hours and, and, uh, it, it was so over the top ridiculous. I'm like, oh, that is how the writer thinks that someone in the military should speak. That writer doesn't know anybody actually in the military. I think Mormonism for beginners works because Stephen and I know Mormonism intimately. And, and that's, that was my computer, and that, and that comes across in the soup that there is, there's, there's no ax grinding in it. And there is, there is a definite, there's a cross. There's a definite affection for Mormonism for beginners that I think comes across the, the way the process worked. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm bouncing around all over and I'm, I'm hoping that this will all coalesce in a big rousing finale for me here. But the way the process worked is Stephen would write chapters and, and, and within those, or he would write, yeah, he would write chapters and within those paragraphs, he would, he would put like little brackets and, and suggestions for illustrations for me. And as I was getting the chapters, you know, and reading them and starting to, to th- thumbnail things out, I felt like I was getting a whole reintroduction to the church for me. I mean, it, it almost, It actually helped me through, um, some very, very, uh, rough periods. And, uh, it, it, it actually helped me fall in love with, with my religion again. And I tried to make sure that that came through in the illustrations as well. And that illustration, you know, you mentioned of, you know, the silhouette of Joseph with all the swirling spirits around and, and he's, you know, he's walking along with, with his, uh, with his divining rod, you know, Stephen had, had said, you know, done, had named a, a type of illustrator, or type of illustration that he thought would work well. But I also knew, okay, this is how Joseph probably looked at 14. So I mean, I was, I was able to bring like my own, my own information to the plate. And I think it worked very well with Stephen. But I, but again, I think Mormonism for beginners works across the spectrum big Be- is because I guess this is my summation paragraph because Steven and I, we know the soup. We we've, 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 I I know that I have run the gamut, um, of true blue Mormon to, Oh my gosh, I'm not sure there is a God to, um, having to sit and assess and say okay what things do i know are real what things am i willing to toss out am i willing to toss anything out and coming out the other side with with a very different testimony that i had um, initially going in but there there's a, a great love and affection for the church even knowing or maybe even especially knowing all of the the messy the messiness of, of of its history and I think that I think that comes out in the book and so it has the ability to appeal to a true blue Mormon believer because Stephen and I have been there and it also has the appeal to someone that doesn't know anything about the church because um i've i've been in the uh the areas of wondering of, of oh my gosh is all this completely made up so i think steven's and my our personal journeys have have so run the gamut that it we actually were able to hit that that sweet spot or that broad spot of of having the ability to have something in there that would speak to anyone
0: yeah my my listeners are going to connect so much with with what you just said and what steven said before that i i mean these folks some of them are really fresh in this and they're just now realizing that that the history that's out there is a little different than the narrative that we've been told and and they're and they're trying to wrestle with that, and I I think both of you guys are hitting on the value of that wrestle. And and I just want to say thank you to both of you. Awesome. I. It, it's just that it's it's this telling the messiness, but telling it telling it in a way that's just honest and forthright and and not really ducking or having some other agenda and. And I think one of the things you hit on and what you just spoke about is this idea that making space by by talking about the messiness, by acknowledging all the flaws which make our faith so interesting, by talking about those flaws like there is more space in Mormonism for differences and I just really love that. I I'm talking today with Stephen Carter and Jet Atwood uh, who put together the book Mormonism for Beginners. We also talked about their iPlates, uh, comic book series. I, I want to make sure that the listeners are aware when you go onto the website to listen to this episode or say you're listening to it on iTunes, I would challenge you to go on the website. I'll leave links there, Stephen and Jet, to your guys' work so that people can, can purchase copies of these things. But I've got, I want to finish up with two things. One is the easy question, which is to ask you both, uh, where people can pick up the iPlates, uh, books as well as this Mormonism for Beginners. Where, where are these being sold at?
1: Well, right now they're being sold on Amazon. I'm in the process of, of updating our webpage so they'll be able to, uh, buy it directly from us. But right now I think the, uh, the best place is, uh, is Amazon.
0: I, I'll leave links up where people can find this work on Amazon, but, but I want to finish up with just one question that, and give both of you a chance to address it and then we'll call it a night and let you guys get back to, to your lives. And I, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to, to sit down and to have this conversation. Um, I, I want to finish with, with the question that as we kind of close the podcast episode off and, and finish up kind of wrapping it up. There, again, there's folks out there who are just just recently have kind of left those shallow waters and waded out into the deep waters of Mormonism and realizing the tension that's here. And both of you obviously have been in that. You've you've been in that for some time. And I, I just wondered if you had any kind of parting thoughts for folks who who are just kind of now realizing that there's a whole lot more to Mormonism that's that's complicated than what they thought, in and they're beginning that wrestle, and and we'll we'll leave it off with that.
1: So a little over a little over ten years ago, uh, I I hit a a major crisis of faith, and and it wasn't, it wasn't. It it's funny how how delicate a testimony actually is. It wasn't like losing a brick here, losing a brick there. It was like it was like a house of cards that suddenly just came tumbling down it was you know it was something is was something as innocuous as well I think it, the apostle is is I think the apostles are really, really wrong about this, and then it was like, oh my gosh, well, they're fallible, but if they're fallible, then maybe you know the the other apostles are fallible, and maybe joseph smith and and the book of mormon and 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 the And, and it suddenly became, and it, and it was, it was almost immediate to, oh my gosh, is there a God? And I remember when I was, when I was in art school, I remember talking to someone and she said, she's like, I don't know, you know, what the point of life is. I think, you know, when we die, we just kind of, and that's it. And I said, I don't think I could get out of bed if I actually believe that. And then. I suddenly found myself in that position and it was like, okay, well, I'm still getting out of bed and I'm still going through my life. And what, what, what do, what do I do? And around the same time there was uh Stephen wasn't the editor of Sunstone yet. It was still Dan Wertherston and he, and uh I think it was Tom Kimball. I would actually have to go back and check. They, they did a, they were doing a, They were doing dance podcasts and they talked about Fowler's stages of faith. And I don't know if you've talked about that in your podcast at all. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my, that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. You know, and he sort of described, you know, like phase one, true blue Mormon, everything is true. And stage two and stage three, you know, stage four, you know, is like the long, dark night of the soul. And then stage five is, you know, coming out the other end, but you're ever for changed. And stage six is, you know, Jesus Gandhi level. And I realized I was suddenly in stage four and I talked to, and I talked to, to Dan shortly after that podcast. And I said, I think that's where I am. You know, how do I, how do I get through this and get to stage five as fast as I possibly can? And, and he and Tom just laughed and they, they said, they're like, you know, for most people, it takes them about 10 years. And I said, I said, okay, well, how do, how do I get through those 10 years without completely screwing up my life? And they laughed and said, well, you, you can't, <laughs> but, and I'm not sure how facetious they were were being or not, but the advice, the advice that I was given was don't change your habits just, just yet, you know, still go to church, still pray, still read your scriptures, You know, keep everything as normal. Normal is like normal as possible. Like don't don't put a wrecking ball to your life just yet. But amid all the amid all the, you know, the normalcy, um, that's where you can start doing your your deep. Your deep pondering and you can start asking yourself, what do you want to keep? And I, I hadn't thought about that. It was, just, I was just suddenly like, you know, reeling with, Oh my gosh, is there a God? And, but then when they asked me like, what do I want to keep? I was like, I, I started thinking about my mission and, uh, other, other experiences in my life that, that had impacted me greatly. And I was like, well, do I want to keep that? Because if, if I'm going to, to chuck everything I have to, I have to give those up and I have to give up the way I've, I have to give up my interpretation of those events. And there were, I wound up realizing there are, there are a number of things in my life, in my past and things that have made me, me that I am, I am not willing to give up. They, they still speak to me. They still, they still inform me. And so by deciding what I wanted to keep, it that sort of wound up being a temporary foundation that I used to kind of put my faith back together. There are experiences on my mission that was like, I want to keep that. If, if I'm keeping that, Then that means this is real, which means that that is real. And how do I feel when I'm reading the Book of Mormon? Even if, even if I think Joseph Smith made that the entire thing up, how do I feel when I'm, when I'm reading it? So it was, it was, it was like losing a house of cards and slowly, slowly, slowly rebuilding a brick house for me. And I don't think anybody's brick house will look the same as they're as they're rebuilding things. but I think that I think that there is tremendous value in in the the struggle and the agony of the rebuild and that it's worth it and it does take about 10 years and you do kind of screw up your life (laughs) but you're a better person on the other end
2: boy you're fast i've been working on it for 15
0: (laughs) so good i mean that's that's really good jet and again i think people need to hear that like you point out when you get to this dark night of the soul when you get to this moment where everything crashes and you think you have nothing left but if you just slow down and hang around and kind of keep studying keep pressing keep thinking through these things like there really is something more beautiful on the other side of that and i i think you hit on that so well um steven your your kind of thoughts here as we wrap up i was fortunate to have a good example early on
2: uh, i was eugene england's personal assistant for the last year of his life and uh it, it was an it was a strange part of his life he had recently been uh sort of subtly fired from BYU for uh some of his writings and his and his speeches and uh it was difficult for him because if, if you read Gene's writings you know that he had a, a gigantic testimony of the divinity of of the Mormon church but at the same time um the the uh, conflicts that he'd gotten in with with leaders of the church had been deep, and had deeply shaken him. I I was sitting with him in his office one day, when he he said, uh, "You have no idea what it's like to hear the things that I have heard from men that I believe have authority from God." And so I watched as Gene sort of sat sort of dwelt in this tension between his his love for the church and the way that some church leaders had treated him and i was profoundly affected by watching him just sit in that tension uh any lesser soul probably would have uh just left the church altogether at that point he had every reason to he he was not treated well And so, um, as, as I progressed into my own (laughs) dark night of the soul, which I did in Alaska, where it gets very dark for very long periods of time, uh, I took a page from his playbook. And so even though (laughs) I had this great feeling that I should, uh, you know, just bug out, get away from this crazy church, I sat with these tensions that I was feeling, and I wrote about them. That's that's actually what What of the Night is about. It's my time in Alaska when I was sitting with all of the tensions that were coming up. And so when you get to the end of each of these essays, there is no moral. <laughs> uh, there's There's a place where the tension grows kind of beautiful, where it reaches a point where it can launch me into a new place and so (laughs) you don't get a really good ending in that but you do get to see what it's like to sit in terrible tension and i agree with chet wholeheartedly that it is the dwelling in that tension that really makes a soul without going through that you don't know what a soul is (laughs) but um one thing that I think is absolutely important is that the most important thing that happened to me during that time—oh goody—it's it's my turn to uh, to uh, break down—was that my wife sat and listened to me the entire time because I was telling her, you know, for a Mormon wife, terrifying things. I was saying things like, "I don't know what has value anymore." Does my Marriage have value? Does my church have value? Do my children have value? Uh, does my soul have value? Is there a soul? Does God have value? What is God? And you know, when you're hearing that from your spouse, your entire, uh, religious worldview, which is the foundation of your worldview, is absolutely threatened. And it looks like the entire thing is coming down and the first thing you want to do is to say, Stop. Let's go talk to the bishop. We need to get things back onto stable ground. But instead, she sat and listened. And that was the most important thing. So if you happen to have someone who was going through this, that's the greatest gift you can give them. It will do more than any kind of preaching. Or any, you know, you, you, it will do more than bringing uh, the president of the church to come and talk with them much more. Because then you you reaffirm to your spouse that that it's the relationship between you and your spouse that's the most important and that you are together. And then you're not alone. Because being alone is the worst part. So that's sort of my parting shot. Stay with your person. Stay in the tension of what's going on. You will learn so much. You will become a deeper, more authentic soul. And just to let you know, you also won't fit very well into the church community. I fit terribly into the church community. They made me the Sunday School president because they were desperate. But you will become a really interesting person. You will be able to see things that other people won't be able to see. You'll be able to heal wounds that other people can't even dete- can't even detect. So those are the two things. Stay in the tension. Don't run away from it. That's where your soul grows. And second, the relationship comes first every time that's atonement 101 you are the best thing you can possibly do is to stay at one with the person as long as you're at one nothing can go
0: terribly wrong because you're together period yeah beautiful to both of you Uh, again we're speaking today with uh, with stephen carter and jet atwood um, who put together the book Mormonism for Beginners? I just, I just want to say, wrapping up, thank you so much to both of you. Um, m- the audience of this podcast, I can tell you because I was touched, they're going to be touched by those words you guys shared at the end. And thank you so much um, uh, again for your time and, and for all that you guys do, uh, both within just your personal lives as well as is to help make Mormonism better. So thank you so much to both of you.